All right, everybody, we're going to get started here. So come on in and get your seat if you're going to be in here. And we're going to have a prayer real quick. So if everybody could get quiet before the Lord here, we're going to pray for these brothers that they will um, just do a great job of communicating uh, the things that God wants us to hear this morning. Father God, thank you for my brothers. Uh, I love them both, and I'm excited um, for the path that you brought them both on, God. Um, their lives and their experiences, the wisdom that you've built into them, Father, the things that you've taught them, they bring to bear this morning. I pray you give them clarity of mind, that you would uh, use them in a powerful way to help us, Father, as we consider your word and its reliability, both in the Old and the New Testament. And Father, how to answer critics that, um, that really criticize and, and try to create doubt uh, in our minds and our hearts about whether or not we can trust your words that were written down so long ago. Father, speak through these men. Help them to build our faith and equip us to go out and better help others that have doubts as well. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, guys. Good to see you. Uh, my name is Daniel McCoy, and it's uh, great to be back. Uh, over there is Brian Cunningham. Everybody say, hi, Brian. All right, so uh, this uh, class is about the Old Testament, and the next one after lunch is about the New Testament, and Brian there is going to be taking most of this one. Uh, I love surrounding myself with people who are smarter than me. It's just a really good way uh, to live, and, uh, and Brian just got his uh, Ph.D. in theology and apologetics. Uh, anybody heard of the Crimson Tide? I'm just curious. Raise your hand if you've heard of the Crimson Tide. Raise your hand if you're a fan of the Crimson Tide. Raise your hand if you're not, underscore not a fan of the Crimson. Okay, we got some of the, all right, I was curious. So Brian was uh, the, the kicker for the Crimson Tide, uh, the football team back in, uh, what year would that have, what years would that have been? 96, 96. I've been told I need to, okay, can you hear me now? I'm better. Oh, sorry about that. Uh, so I too uh, am a football, well, no, no, hang on foosball player. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a foosball player. Uh, but anyway, so we're going to be talking about the Old Testament. Very important stuff. You guys have a lot of courage um, to, to be here, learn this, and be able to communicate it to others. Um, now, the, the Old Testament, when we're talking about the reliability of it, uh, at, the, at the first level, you know, we're talking about the truthfulness of the Old Testament. Is it true? Are these stories that are written down, are these, are these true? And uh, we could spend today talking about that. We could be talking about some of the important things like the dozens of prophecies in the Old Testament that come true in the New Testament. We could be talking about that. Uh, we could be talking about the hundreds of pictures in the Old Testament um, that are fulfilled in the New Testament. Can you think of any of those that are like, like happens in the Old Testament and then I was like, New Testament hits, we're like, whoa, I think I've seen that before. Any, 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 uh, any ideas on what mo some of those pictures might be? The, pass the Passover would be a great example, right? Uh, where you've got the, uh, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and then the wrath of God passes over. There's hundreds of those pictures in the Old Testament that come true in the New Testament. Uh, we, we, there are archaeological finds that we could go 
over things like, you know, they didn't used to think that the Hittites existed, and then they found archaeological evidence for the Hittites, and David and Sargon, all, all sorts of historical uh, people. So at one level, we could talk about the truthfulness of the Old Testament, and that'd be definitely worth our time. Uh, another thing with the truthfulness would be uh, Jesus and the, the, res- the utter respect and reverence that Jesus had for the Old Testament. Uh, you know, always saying things like, hey, uh, you know, the, the, the Old Testament can't be broken. A uh, thing where he took the Old Testament, he lifted it way up, and so we need to do the same thing. However, that's good news, okay? It's good news that the Old Testament is true and that there's evidence for the truthfulness of the Old Testament. However, there are a lot of people out there, increasingly more and more people, who would look at that and they'd say, you know what, that's actually not good news because I wasn't actually hoping that the Old Testament would be true. They actually have some some deeper problems with the Old Testament, and they would prefer it not to be true. And this is where I'm going to ask you to think, think with me, uh, what are maybe a couple reasons why people might not want the Old Testament to be true? The wrath, the wrath of God, because they're like, well, if the Old Testament is true, then that means that God did some things that were downright scary. Like what? What are some of those scary things in the Old Testament? The plagues. Read the plagues. My goodness. What else? The flood. Noah's flood. Uh, the Canaanites, uh, where God told his people to go in and, and uh, kill Canaanites uh, who, had been, um, who, who had been doing what God uh, didn't want them to do. So a lot of stuff in there that make people say, you know what? If it's true, that's actually not necessarily a good thing. And that's why I have invited Brian to talk. He's going to be talking about kind of that deeper, that deeper issue. Obviously, there's the question of whether it's true, and there's great evidence that the Old Testament stories are true. But we're going to go a little bit deeper here. Brian's going to uh, help us think through uh, whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing that it is true. Does this make sense? Um, all right, let me just see if there's anything else in my notes. Um, there isn't. So with that... Give Brian a big hand. All right, hello everybody. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me with you here today. I was telling <coughs> Mackie uh, just a just a few minutes ago. I was driving in about a mile and a half away, and um, sitting there thinking, okay, so I'm I'm going to be presenting. A lesson with uh, Robert, Kerry Cox present, with Mackie present, C. West. I followed him for a number of years before we had even met at West Coast Witness. See Lynn Stringfellow there. And given the reference to Alabama, said it's like coming to a coaching clinic with Nick Saban and Bear Bryant <laughs> there, and I just don't feel uh, just don't feel worthy. But nevertheless, God is worthy. And so may he get all the glory due to him. Little disclaimer before we get started. There will be some things in here that will be shocking to you, especially growing up in the United States and Western civilization. Some things that I don't want to talk about, I don't even want to mention, I don't even want to think about. Some of the things we're going to be sharing this morning but I think you'll see why it's, it will be essential. A few years ago, I was a campus minister for a church that was about half a mile from North Carolina State University in Raleigh. 
And so I gathered the students over and we were watching this five-week series on the history of the Bible, which was shown on the History Channel. And at least in the Old Testament, some of the things that they talked about, some of the things that, that Daniel just mentioned a moment ago, the wrath of God, the destruction of the Canaanites was pretty shocking for the college students. And they really weren't sure what to make of it. And so Paul Copan, he wrote a book about this. His book is called, Is God a Moral Monster? And what he had to say is this, unfortunately, many Christians are reluctant to tackle such subjects. And as, and as a result, the results are fairly predictable. When uninformed Christians are challenged about these texts, they may be rattled in their faith or perhaps miss an opportunity to remove an obstacle that would prevent someone from coming to faith. And while I was on the campus at North Carolina State University, I ran into this objection more than one time. And here's how the objection went. If you're a Christian, you condemn genocide. You condemn what the Nazis did with the Holocaust. So Christians condemn genocide. God's command to wipe out the Canaanites was a divine act of genocide. Therefore, Christians, all of you should condemn God. But you don't. So I don't believe in your God. And a lot of this line of thinking comes from what are known as the new atheists. Now, they're not as popular or influential as they were about 10 or 15 years ago. But nevertheless, some of the things they had to say still resonates with many people. For example, probably the well, most well-known atheist in the world today, Richard Dawkins, said that the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malvenant bully. He is a psychotic moral monster. The late Christopher Hitchens had to say that the Canaanites were pitilessly driven out of their homes to make room for the ungrateful and mutinous children of Israel. And then Sam Harris, who is one of the atheists, says that his goal, one of his goals in life is to demolish the intellectual and moral pretensions of Christianity in its most committed forms. In fact, putting to death idolaters in our midst reflects God's timeless wisdom. Again, this line of thinking has had an effect, not just on unbelievers, but also believers as well. But as Paul Copan says, he says, I believe with patience, humility, and charity, we can navigate these waters with greater skill, arriving at a far more satisfactory answer than Dawkins, Hitchens, and Harris will allow. Now, in attempting to deal with this problem, with this situation, we first have to understand that there is a real objective standard of morality. So there really is something as right and wrong. And instinctively, we all know it. For example, if I walk off this stage and when he's not looking and I slap Mackie across the face, we instinctively know that that is wrong. 
We don't have to take a moral philosophy class at some college anywhere to know what I did to Mackie was wrong. We instinctively know it. And the reason we instinctively know it is what Ecclesiastes and Romans tells us in God's word. It tells us that the moral law is written on our hearts. So instinctively, we know right from wrong. We don't have to think about it. But the question is, where does that come from? And there's many answers that are given today, as you can see on the screen. As Christians, we believe it comes from God himself. There's also those that'll say, well, it comes from society, it comes from individuals, or maybe it's embedded in our DNA. So where does it come from? And how do we know? Because if you don't know, you can't really say what God did to the Canaanites was evil. You can't say that. I remember about 2005, 2007 range, I was in a Panera Bread, and there was a guy that was a painter, and he was doing some very amazing work. And so I said to him, man, you've got God-given talent. That really is impressive. And he said, well, well, thank you very much. So I went over, sat down to, at the table to eat my food. And so he comes over to my table and he pulls up a chair, welcomes himself. And he says, you know, I really appreciate what you said, but the problem is I don't believe in God. And he said, I've been reading this book called The End of Faith by Sam Harris. is one of the atheists showed you just a moment ago. And I said, okay, that's, Okay, that's fine. So, well, tell me, what, what is your standard for morality? How do you know right from wrong? And he said, well, each individual decides what's right or wrong. I said, okay. Adolf Hitler decided for himself. Was he right or wrong? He said, oh, he was wrong. Well, wait a second. Took out a piece of paper, a pen, wrote it out. Every person decides for themselves what is right or wrong. On the other side of the paper, Hitler decided for himself. Was he wrong? The man said, yes. So I said, let's try this again. He couldn't get it. Couldn't get it. This is one of those situations where God's word rings true. That they allow themselves to be blinded by Satan. Even when written out black and white, he couldn't see it. It's very sad. Once I was on the campus at NC State University, I was talking to a guy named Stephen. He was an atheist, and I asked him the same question. What's your standard for morality? He said, well, society determines what is right and wrong. And I said, okay, so everybody just kind of comes together. And if somebody gets murdered, everybody agrees that that's pretty much wrong. Is that what you're talking about? And he said, yes. I said, okay, let me ask you a question. At one point in the United States, society agreed that slavery was right and it should be legal. It's a brief pause there for a moment with, with Stephen. He was a nice guy. He wasn't, wasn't antagonistic at all. And he said, well, well, maybe it was just a few powerful people that decided that it was right and okay. Okay, so if that's the case, then society doesn't get to determine what's right or wrong. 
So your whole argument has just completely just fell apart. And then I asked him, well, so if it's just a few people, Stephen, why are you seeking to oppress the minority? He didn't have an answer. But let's, per- let's push this a little bit further. We'll go to the next slide. If it is true that society determines morality, if society determines what is right and what is wrong, then anyone, anyone who opposes society's standards by definition would be immoral. And if that's the case, consider these people who would be immoral. William Wilberforce. He got the slave trade abolished in the United Kingdom. Corrie ten Boom. She rescued a lot of children and a lot of people from the Holocaust. Who else went against society standards? Jesus Christ himself. I dare anyone of sane or sober mind to admit that one or all of these people are immoral and they won't do it. And you know why they won't do it? Because they know what they did was not immoral. And the reason they know it is because the law is written on our hearts. Well, some people will say, well, it's just, it's just in our DNA. But here's the problem with that. No one has ever found a moral code written into the fabric of our DNA. No one. Go ahead the next slide or the next picture. There we go. All right. So there I am on my wedding day in my, in my Scottish kilt. And the reason I have Scottish kilt is because I married a girl from Scotland. It's pretty, isn't she? It's got a cool accent too. So Vicki is, is an ultra nerd. She's got her PhD in chemistry from Glasgow University there in Scotland. She never even mentioned the fact that there was a moral code written in any chemistry or any biology textbook that she studied during her time in school. The reason is, is because it's not there. And those that actually take time to look into this, that are intellectually honest, will say that it's a farce. For example, Florida State University philosopher Michael Roos, who was an atheist, said that Morality is an illusion put in place by your genes to make you a social cooperator, and by this we can conclude that God is dead. The new atheists think that this is a significant finding. In this, as in just about everything else, they are completely mistaken. God is dead. Morality has no foundation. The late Harvard evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould said in his book, of all things, Rock of Ages, He said that we still cannot draw moral messages from any factually constructed of nature. Nature doesn't give a bleep about us. Therefore, we cannot use nature for our moral instruction. Moral instruction doesn't come from individuals. It doesn't come from society. It doesn't come from our DNA. Go ahead in the next slide, please. If that's the case, then morality by nature is not physical. 
In other words, morality is not something that you can see, taste, touch, or smell. If it's not physical, then it's non-physical. If it's non-physical, then it's either an abstract or it's a spiritual quality. Now, we don't appeal to abstracts in moral discussions. For example, no one ever says, you know what? The number seven made me do this today. I was thinking about the number seven and I went and robbed the bank. That's insanity. No, no one thinks that way. If they're sane. So if it's not an abstract type of thing, then it's a spiritual quality. And if it's spiritual, if it's non-physical, then it has to be founded by something that also is non-physical because physical things cannot produce non-physical things. And that's kind of a headache waiting to happen. But, but we see what God's word reveals to us. God is spirit. He is spirit. He is not a physical object. John 4, 24. So therefore, the moral law, right and wrong, just as God's word declares it in Romans and Ecclesiastes, is based on God himself. So first, we need to have a standard for morality, right and wrong. But secondly, we really need to understand the nature and the horror of sin if we are to begin to understand God's judgment, as we see in the Old Testament on the Canaanites. Clay Jones, theologian, had this to say. He said that most of our problems in looking at God and his wrath stem from the fact that God hates sin, but we do not. And then C.S. Lewis goes on to say, he clarifies this more. He said, when we merely say that we are bad, the wrath of God seems a barbarous doctrine. But as soon as we perceive our badness, it appears inevitable, a mere result from God's goodness. Here's how we know. God's word declares to us several different passages, but two stand out immediately. In Isaiah 53, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the apostle Paul, he goes a little bit deeper with this. He says in Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three, he says, as for you, you were dead in your sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Clay Jones goes on to say that in Genesis 3, the Lord said in the garden that if Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they would surely die. God didn't say you will die peacefully in your sleep at a ripe old age of natural causes, but that you will surely die. Thus, every person begins life under the sentence of death. That's a hard piece of truth. If we really stop to think about it, the nature of sin. But before we get into the Canaanites, here's a disclaimer. We're going to look at the sinfulness of humanity 
And when you notice, when you hear of these things, one of the first things people will say is, well, that's inhumane. Wholeheartedly agree. Human beings were not created for this type of behavior. But at the same time, the question to be asked is, who did these works? Humans did it. From the October Revolution in 1917, when communism took over Russia and became the Soviet Union, all the way up until 1989, a conservative estimate of 20 to 26 million people were executed by their own people. In 1931 to 1932, the Ukrainian people began to get sick of what the Soviets were doing. And so to stop a potential rebellion, Joseph Stalin had all of their food taken from them. Even children as young as five, if they were caught stealing grain, just so that they would eat, they were executed, children. Speaking of children, as one historian writes, the most terrifying sights were kids whose skeleton limbs were dangling from balloon-like abdomens. Starvation had robbed the children of their youth. Only in their eyes did they resemble children. It takes a lot of people to starve six million Ukrainians. Handful can't do it. Little side note here. It's interesting that Richard Dawkins comes to the defense of atheism And he says, Stalin did extremely evil things in the name of dogmatic and doctrinaire Marxism, but he didn't do it in the name of atheism. Two points here. Let's say he didn't do it in the name of atheism. I'll grant Dawkins that. But what did his atheism have to do with stopping it? Dawkins never thought about that before. So either... This brilliant biologist is either ignorant or he's dishonest. As Karl Marx wrote in 1844, he said, communism begins with the outset of atheism. Ideas have consequences. Moving on, we'll just go by this one briefly just because it's the most popular one and everyone knows about it, just about, at least anyway. Estimates were given that 6 million Jews were executed by the Nazis during World War II. And the Nazis are pretty much set up as a standard for the depravity of humanity. But they're not even close to what I'm about to share with you next. In 1937, Japan invaded Nanking, China. And here's what one historian had to say. Chinese men were used for bayonet practicing while they were alive. 
They were also used in decapitation contests. Estimated 20 to 80,000 women were raped. But the soldiers went beyond this. They did live burials, castration, carving of organs. The roasting of people became routine. But more diabolical tortures were practiced such as hanging people by their tongues on iron hooks or burying people to their waist and watching them get torn apart by German shepherds. So sickening was the spectacle. The Nazis that were present said that what the Japanese were doing at that time was beast-like. That was the Nazis saying that. In China, under Mao, an estimated 60 to 100 million people were executed by their own government. Historians say that 45 million of those people were killed in just four years. In many villages throughout China, 50% of the people were starved to death. Mao wanted strict education of communism. And it said that he buried alive 46,000 college professors. And he was boasting about this. And the reason he was boasting about this is because they noted that a long time ago when the Xing dynasty, I believe, the emperor at that time had buried alive 460 people. He said, oh, that's nothing. We've buried alive for 46,000, as if it was some kind of conquest. But before they were buried alive, it says professors were dressed in grotesque clothes, dunce caps, and had their faces smeared with ink. They were then forced to get down on all fours and bark like dogs some even subjected to cannibalism, all for Mao's push of communism on the people. We don't have time to go into details about others, but here's some others. It's food for thought. In Bosnia, between 1992 and 1995, over 200,000 deaths. Rwanda in 1994, it's not that long ago, 800,000 deaths. Pol Pot in Cambodia is estimated to have killed 2 million people in a four-year period. There was a book that came out in a few years ago called Ordinary Men, written by a man named Christopher Browning. He writes about what took place in Poland during World War II when the Nazis invaded, they, some of the Polish men submitted to the Nazis. They took their fellow Jews, people they worked with, people they lived next door with, too. They marched them out in the woods and executed them in cold blood. About 20% decided to back away, but the 80% went on a killing spree. Today, around the world, at least this was the case a few years ago, 450 people every day who claim the name of Christ are put to death. 
Now, why in the world are we talking about such horrible, horrible things? Because this is the logical outworking of being children of wrath. So what is God supposed to do with all of this? What is God supposed to do with all of these people that commit such atrocities? Again, these atrocities are inhumane because we were not created for this. But humans did commit these atrocities. And you'll still find some that will do it today. So again, what is God's response supposed to be? Miroslav Volf, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, had this to say. He said, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God, but isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love and God loves every creature in person. But that's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the side of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. So perhaps when we get to the Canaanites, looking at the historical atrocities of the 20th century, will maybe make it a little bit more easier to deal with. Because at the heart of the Canaanite people was what was at heart of those just mentioned from the Soviet Union, from Japan, from China, from Germany, Rwanda, and so on. It's idolatry. Romans 1.18 and following says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So for the Canaanites, at one point, they did know the, the true God. But somewhere along the way, they exchanged the glory of God for an image made in the eyes of man. Ulf Oldenburg, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, from the University of Chicago, 
said of the Canaanites that God lost the dynamic strength expressed in his name. Most Canaanite texts describe him as a poor weakling, a coward, the contempt of goddesses. One text depicts God as a drunkard splashing in his excrement and his urine after a banquet. To this, Dawkins has to say that God's monumental rage whenever his chosen people flirted with a rival God resembles nothing so much as jealousy of the worst kind. But in response, Clay Jones says, but does anyone think that if Dawkins' wife left him for a gingerbread man of her own baking, and then she began to tell everyone that Dawkins liked to play with his excrement, that he would tolerate the characterization of his feelings as no more than jealousy of the worst kind? Hardly not. And here we have God exchanged for images of mortal human beings, as it says in Romans. The Canaanites began to worship Baal. And what did Baal do? You can say some pretty horrible things. At first, the Canaanites believed that people should be executed, be put to death if they engage in this type of behavior. But eventually it became to be seen as not a big deal. Next in the Canaanite religion, we have temple prostitution, which is Ishtar, who was considered the queen of heaven among the gods. As one historian wrote, said that physical relations with a person whose life was devoted to the goddess Ishtar was tantamount to union with the goddess herself. And to this, priests and other men, regardless of their whether they were married or not, could join themselves to female and male prostitutes in order to join themselves to the goddess. The Canaanites also practiced child sacrifice in the worshiping of their god, Melech. Melech was a Canaanite underworld deity represented as an, represented as an upright bullheaded idol with a human body and whose belly was a fire and had outstretched arms. And when people would sacrifice their children to Melech, what they would do is they would place the child in the arms, gravity would take over, the child would roll down the arms into a pit of fire. Children up to four years old were sacrificed. There's an ancient historian named Plutarch that said that when this would take place, the people would play trumpets as loud as they could and bang on drums or other things so they, so they would not hear the screaming of the babies or the children being sacrificed to Melech. Which brings up an interesting point, doesn't it? What's wrong with screaming? What's wrong with this? Interestingly, instinctively, the Canaanites knew it was wrong. Otherwise, they wouldn't try to hide the screaming. And there's other aspects. But I'm, I'm going to refrain from mentioning them because I, I don't, I mean, it's so bad. I know a lot of things we talked about is horrible, but it gets even worse. And I just can't say it. So we see the deplorable nature of sin in its logical outworking of people who do not have the Holy Spirit. 
Now, this doesn't mean that every atheist or Dawkins would not participate in this. Hitchens and Sam Harris, friends of mine that are not Christians, would not participate in this because they do have the moral law written on their heart. But this is the logical outworking of that. If there's, if there's no resistance, people will just go along with it. And so this is why God told Israel to drive out the Canaanites. But Israel failed. They didn't do it. And what happened? Israel worshiped other gods and followed their practices. If you look in the book of Judges, you'll see one thing that keeps repeating itself. And the people did evil in the eyes of the Lord and the people did evil and the people did evil and the people did evil. Solomon, wisest man to have ever lived besides Jesus. The wisest man ever set up an altar to Malek. Prophets were sent to warn the people, but they did not listen. And so God poured out his wrath on Israel. And Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians sacked the city, destroyed the temple, and took them into slavery. Now, we all see that this happened in the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? God is different. He's, there's a God of wrath in the Old Testament, but there's this God of love in the New Testament. Again, as we saw earlier, they're not mutually exclusive. In Luke chapter 20, Jesus warned the Jews in the, the parable of the tenants in the vineyard. The servants were sent to them, but they had been mistreated. And so the owner of the vineyard sent his son, Jesus. And what happened? The tenants killed the son. And Jesus, Jesus then asked the Pharisees, so what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? The owner will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And then in 70 AD, Approximately 40 years after Jesus died and rose from the dead, the Roman Emperor Titus destroyed Jerusalem. The ancient, ancient Jewish historian that lived during this time, Josephus, had this to say, that the Romans executed over one million Jews. They were known to have crucified as many as 500 Jews per day. Estimates by historians say that one-third to one-half of the Jewish population were wiped out. And that's a far greater percentage than what Hitler and the Nazis did to the Jews back in World War II. Famine was so bad that Josephus says that people ran to the sewers and the hills of camel dung for food. Titus renamed the region Palestine. And for almost 1,900 years, no one could point Israel on a world map. And even today, all these years later, the temple built by Herod still lies in rubble, as Jesus predicted in Mark chapter 13. 
So what are we to take from all of this? Well, first, Dawkins and Hitchens and so on, they are unable to provide any type of framework for moral behavior. And if they don't have a framework, they can't criticize it. Secondly, we see that God takes sin very, very seriously. And throughout Western civilization, I think Christians don't take sin seriously enough. But even still, here's the good news of the gospel. God still pursues people. He still chases after them. God is slow to anger. It's all throughout the Bible. He wants no one to perish. God doesn't want anyone to perish. Paul, who executed Christians before he became this great proclaimer of God's word, this amazing evangelist, who we learn from still today. And concerning the Canaanites, the Old Testament scholars have estimated that God gave 430 years of warnings for the Canaanites to change. But they didn't. He could have taken them out like that. But he gave them time to repent. But they never did. Next, we take Jesus at his word. Think back uh, just a second ago to the destruction of Jerusalem. In Luke 21, verses 20 through 21, this is what Jesus told his followers. He said, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by the armies, flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. You wanna hear something really fascinating? I mentioned Josephus a moment ago. He wrote that when the Romans were coming upon the city of Jerusalem, less than a mile away, and no one knows the reason why, but he stopped the attack. I think it was for three days. And the Christians remembered the words of Jesus. When you see the armies surround the city, get out. So they did. They fled. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And just as those that listened to his words were saved from the destruction, that horrible destruction by the Roman army, Jesus is still saving people today from sin. And he takes us from children of wrath to children of light. Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. 
May the name of Jesus Christ, who has saved us from the horribleness of sin, may his name alone be praised. Thank you very much for, for your time this morning. So. Oh, uh, any questions or anything? Kind of afraid to ask that question, but uh, any questions? I heard one speaker say, if no one has a first question, who has a second question out there? Okay. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I should repeat yeah. that. So in the presentation, you mentioned Richard Dawkins not having thought of that point that you brought to bear. Um, how do we know that he hadn't thought of it? I didn't. Well, I've never seen, I've never seen anything written by him or presented by him to say that in, uh, on YouTube videos and things like that. I've watched, I've watched a lot of Richard Dawkins. When I was on um, the campus at NC State, I had, there were, I had a, uh, a handful of atheists that would tell me, well, well, atheism didn't cause those atrocities. And I think if Dawkins would have, um, would have thought of it, he, he, he might have addressed it. Or maybe he has thought of it and hadn't addressed it because, he knows it because he knows it would probably be a defeater for atheism. But the point was, if atheism did not cause the atrocities we, see, we saw in the 20th century, what did atheism do to prevent it? And the answer is absolutely nothing. So for Richard Dawkins and atheists that hold to this, you know, this really strict atheism, at best, atheism is useless because it doesn't prevent any atrocities from happening. What they have to do is they have to borrow from Christianity. They have to borrow from God himself. And they know these things are wrong, again, because the moral law in Ecclesiastes and Romans, the moral law is written on their hearts. So they borrow from Christianity, but they don't even realize it because they've allowed themselves to be blinded by Satan himself. And they made absolutely no room for the Holy Spirit. And God will not force himself on people. He's, no, he's, he's not that kind of God. So, yep. Sorry. Got a little bit animated there. So, yeah. Okay. I have one more question. So, uh, and I know um, this is not at all what you're saying, and, but I'd like to hear you talk about it a little more. Because we would never argue that atheists can't do good, right? right. Um, but they just don't have a basis for that good. Right. Could you talk to that for a little bit? Yes, yes. So if, I, if I'm going to get these words, hopefully I get these words correctly. And Daniel, you can correct me if I butcher these things. But um, Mackie, you can, you can correct me too. But again, this is not to say that people that are atheists or that are not believers support this type of thing. They don't. I have many friends from different faiths, um, different backgrounds that are agnostics, that are atheists, that are, that are Muslims. Um, and to the best of my knowledge, none of them would support this type of thing. But the difference is, as Mackie just pointed out, you know, 
Where's the foundation? Where, where does that come from? So this is, this is a, a nerdy word called ontology. It means the foundation of things. Where, do, where does things come from? Versus uh, another uh, big word that I don't ever use on a, ever. It is called epistemology. You know, how do you know things? But ontology of, of where do these things come from? And so again, we listed that um, there's, there's a few different areas that people will say that the knowledge of right and wrong come from. Individuals, society, biology, our DNA, but it actually comes from God himself, theology. So, um, so I would just, uh, so if anyone ever questions you, I, that's, that's my favorite go-to thing when I'm dealing with unbelievers is what is your basis for right and wrong? Where does it come from? The majority of the time, they've never even thought about it. Because most people are, we like to think, or, or like us. Most people are not going to go out there and just, just murder people just, just for the heck of it. They're not going to do that because, because again, we, we just instinctively know. But then the question, where does that come from? That really puts what I heard one somebody say one time, it puts, it puts a pebble in their shoe. And so every time they take a step, they're thinking about it. It's, it's a seed to be planted. See, an argument like this can't convert someone. That's, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, God uses these things to make people think and to plant seeds. And if they're honest in their search, if they really want to know, God will pursue those people. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He is desperately wanting people to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So, yep, pebble. All right, Mackie. All right. Um, so I think we, uh, we'll go ahead and okay. break. I'm going to let Mackie close us out with a prayer, if that's cool. Um, but uh, at 3 o'clock, uh, we're going to be talking about the New Testament. Uh, so hopefully you can join us then. Thanks, guys. God, thank you for... Thank you for my talented brothers um, and sharing their, their knowledge and sharing their wisdom with us. Um, we want to leave here better equipped, and I know, uh, as far as I can speak for myself, I'm leaving here better equipped. So, God, thank you for that. I pray that we can take these things, that we can engage uh, the people in our spheres of influence, that we can put pebbles in their shoes. I love that. I just... I pray that we can just tug on people's hearts and show them a better way and show them that this life can make sense. Even we can make sense out of the struggle. We can make sense out of the pain and suffering in the world. And we don't have all the answers. And we wish that these things didn't have to be. But, but that there are answers that are sufficient um, to believing in you and to trusting you and to living for you in this world. I pray that you increase everyone here's faith. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.